For a number of years, my favorite event in the country was the Festival of Faith in Music in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The festival host, a gentleman named Ken Hefner, would stand up in front of headlining artists' audiences and challenge those audiences to be as prepared for the show as the band they were about to see. What he would say was, you would expect this band to have brought their A-game with regards to performance. I'm asking you if you brought your A-game with regards to listening. Stephen Covey, who's the writer of the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is quoted as saying that most people do not listen with the intent to understand, they listen with the intent to reply. You've been in those conversations when the person listening to you is really just paying attention so that they can say what they've already planned on saying. Along with people like Ken Hefner, John J. Thompson has spent the lion's share of his career trying to and coaching people to listen differently beyond trying to simply understand, much less reply. John J. Thompson believes that listening can be, and most of the time is, a transformative experience. I got to catch up with John at the White Owl Festival just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, not too long ago, and I really enjoyed our conversation. I think you will too. Check it out. But you're from, are you from Chicago, from Chicago? Yeah, well, because um, you live in you live here-ish yeah, now. East Nashville, yeah. You're in East Nashville, but you're from Chicago, yeah. kind of. Yeah, my grandparents lived there my whole life, and uh, I lived in Central Illinois until I was ten. I kind oh, of really? The country. Yeah, um, my biological father was a criminal, and so he kind of actual criminal. Yeah, yeah, he was a he was a sociopathic con man criminal. And Which, this is not helping anyone who has issues already with Chicago as a corrupt city. <laughs> he was way too undisciplined to actually be a criminal in Chicago, so he stayed out in the hinterlands. <laughs> yeah. um, he, he, we were down kind of in the Springfield area and the Peoria area, but uh, always in the outskirts. But, but um, by the time I was 10, uh, my mom took us and we, we went into hiding for a while and lived in a rescue mission and lived at a Christian camp. And then eventually when it was safe, uh, we settled in with my grandparents in the Chicago area. So from the time I was 11 or so on, the Chicago suburbs was home until yeah. we moved here 14 years ago. Yeah. And you moved here for m- music not to really, a point. No? Not, no? Yeah, not re- I mean, yeah, yeah, I guess indirectly. But um, actually for so long, Michelle and I were determined not to move to Nashville because we loved Chicago and I built True Tunes in Chicago. I was a pastor at a church in Aurora, Illinois. Yeah. And um, we loved the community we were a part of and the culture and everything. And Nashville, to me, I had only experienced it through the lens of the Christian music industry. Yes. And coming for things like GMA Week and stuff like that. And I I experienced it. Um, my experiences with it were, uh, were incomplete huh. and were not entirely uh, positive. And so yeah. I, I saw it as somewhat cheesy, somewhat sleazy. Um, and I just thought, man, I don't want to be any part of that. But as Michelle and I, we got married young. I was 20. She was 21. That was back in 1991. That was uh, 30 years ago this week. Um, we had started doing a lot of international missions trips yes. and we would go wherever the door opened. So we'd done several trips to 
Europe. And then I did a trip to Mexico, Colombia, and Honduras for the Evangelical Alliance mission, just helping them tell the stories about what they were doing. And we started to feel like, man, maybe we should move to Europe and do this work there, or hmm. do music and work with teenagers there. Maybe we should, you know, we would go anywhere. It felt like other than Nashville, <laughs> like it had become kind of a Nineveh to us in some ways. Fascinating. And, and then I had this very serious health crisis where I, I almost died. I had an internal bleeding thing and I, I went into a, um, had an event where uh, they had to put me into a coma for three days and um, I should have died. It was a miracle that I didn't die. And, yeah. Um, coming through that, I definitely had a sense that there was another chapter left to write. And hmm. what was it? What was my purpose? And um, suddenly both of us felt that Nashville was suddenly kind of a mission field. Hmm. It wasn't about going there for our music. It wasn't about going there for my career in the industry. It was about people that we knew who were hurting and people that were outside of the margins and stuff. Huh. And so... It, it, it was both of us we were thinking it at the same time but we were kind of afraid to tell each other yeah yeah <laughs> and, and then we did finally and we both felt like well gosh man f after all these years yes we feel like we're called to nashville but it was specifically for people it was to do ministry but not plant a church not some kind of traditional thing it was just literally like who are we there to love what what are we supposed to do because frankly the the institutions and the constructs were part of the problem because we, yes. had the, our friends that we were specifically knew, um, going through divorces, dealing with addiction, dealing with suicidal issues, and um, they all had been plugged into some kind of a quote unquote church. Yeah, it clearly wasn't helping. Like right. what they right, needed right. was more access to transformative relationships and discussions and living life in a way that would actually go deeper. And so yes. we just thought, let's just go and see what's happening and that so the the something more part of that is very much it very much lies at the heart of what you do professionally with true tunes yeah. that uh which well, what i want to do is in a minute i'll have you the talk, kind of trace us to now mm -hmm. because you're you are spending a lot of time on with on the true tunes podcast yeah. but that comes from a history oh yeah uh, and it might not be like a culmination of, but like it is at least a pretty significant moment in a long history yeah. with True Tunes. But the heart of that, and I think I get this about you, and you can tell me if I'm off here, is you don't have like an animosity towards what you know folks will call like the Christian industry or the uh -huh. Christian. There's no animosity in the general sense. We're like, this is all garbage. Right. But you do have a sense that it sells itself as a market mm -hmm. and as a culture a bit short right. um, yeah. and the way you've gone about making that critique hasn't been to like crap talk a bunch of artists who aren't good you highlight things moments artists albums that are deeper they're mm -hmm. truer they're a little bit richer can you talk a little bit about and, and kind of do this as like the, the historical piece. How do you how do you get in that door as a as a kid right. where you know that where you do you have that discernment moment, right? And which like hey, religiously oriented art, I'm I actually have an affinity to. Some of this is crap though, right? And I don't have to like it just because it's my brand of religion, right? Well, one thing is I didn't I didn't find a door. I kind of made a door. 
And I didn't come up in the evangelical church at too much. What's weird is that I grew up in an Episcopal church that had a very evangelical approach to Bible study and teaching the scriptures. Yeah. I realize it's kind of an anomaly, but uh, it did not have a culture-fearing nature to it. My youth pastor was bringing me over to his house and making me listen to Bruce Springsteen records so that I could, because I didn't like Bruce Springsteen, I didn't understand. But he's like, you've got to listen to this and understand what's hmm. going on in this music that's making it worth our attention. That was my youth pastor. He yeah. Was, you know, and... Um, and then my that's, my, that's good ministry. My best friend. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen's good ministry. Yeah, it was. And I was like, now I still didn't really come to fully appreciate the music until I got a little bit older because I like stuff that was punkier and weirder and stuff. But my best friend Rob and I started playing music together and we were friends from church and we wanted to play new wave alternative kind of music. And we, and we were very inspired by both Steve Taylor who had this sardonic, sarcastic, satirical Christian element to what he did was very much like Elvis Costello in a lot of ways, yes. like, you know, commentary that was edgy and witty, but also driven by and informed by his faith. But at the same time, he was willing to poke fun at the people and the, the institution he was a part of. Yeah. Just like Elvis Costello. He was self-aware. It was exactly self-awareness. And so to us, we didn't come at it through the evangelical subculture trying to create a Christian version of this or that. We came at it by finding the best stuff because we came at it through things like the Cornerstone Festival and in the shadow of Japusa, Jesus People USA in Chicago. Yes. And so, and I was in Chicago listening to the best music, not the best Christian music, the best music. Like I, I had access to radio and magazines and record stores. And, yes. And so I, when I was 13, 14 years old and I discover the call and the simple minds and the alarm and you too and john hyatt and artists that were chris t-bone burnett was huge for yes me. artists that were that had a spiritual christian backbone to what they were doing but they were singing for everybody yeah and then at cornerstone i found christian artists that were still operating within this christian bubble but were doing it with a sharp elbows like yeah. they were they were fighting for the truth in that thing i thought man okay there, there is a way to talk about this stuff that I didn't see anybody else doing it. Yeah. And I wanted to talk to my generation about it. Hmm. But I knew that my generation would not go into a Christian bookstore. Nope. They weren't going to find it because none of them were going to church. Nope. And if they did, it was because their parents made them. Yeah. And the worst thing would be if they heard about this music at church because then they would never take it seriously. Yes. So I wanted to create a conversation, a space where kids like me, kids like my friends, when I made a mixtape, for instance... I could do it and I could give it to a friend and I could mix the songs in such a way that they would interact with it and just respond to the music as not music to all of the crap around it and go, well, if, if it hadn't been my youth pastor giving it to me or if yeah. I hadn't heard it and hadn't been sit through some blowhard preaching for an hour, like I would have probably responded differently. So I thought, well, I'm going to take all that stuff away and create a space where people can just have a reaction. Now, I was doing this just by instinct. Like I was yeah. a kid. I was just... And as a kid, you're talking about how old are you at the time? I was 14 when I wrote the plan for True Tunes. I was, got a job when I was 16 as the music buyer at a Catholic bookstore. And I laid out the plan and they hired me. They said, you got to clean the toilets. You got to vacuum the floors. You got to... You're a grunt. <laughs> like you're doing yeah. all the grunt work. But when you're done with all that, you can manage the little music department. And I promised them naively, but sincerely, I'll double your music sales in six months, which I did. And then I doubled them again in another six months. And then I went to him when I graduated from high school, the owner, 
with a business plan for True Tunes, with the name, the logo, the plan. The, it's going to yeah. be a record store, eventually a magazine, eventually a concert venue. I started promoting concerts when I was still, you know, 17 years old. Yes. And and kids were coming into True Tunes that were not Christian kids, or they might have been believers, but they weren't. They weren't coming because they were Christians. They were coming because the culture around it was interesting, the music was interesting. It felt authentic to what they were going through yes. what they were interested you know it was fun too it was yeah. rebellious it was kind of dangerous and there's something to be said for even like even at this point there's something to be said for the decision to create culture yeah, 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 yeah. versus simply acquiescing or cashing on culture or just right. like acquiescing to this right. to this notion that you are a subculture right like one of one of the, the very very fair critiques of the christian marketplace of christian art culture is that it is some strangely enough like happily a like a subculture it is a thing that is relegated to its own corner by something that is not itself as opposed to the the creation of culture is that like the the, i'm going to make something we're going to make something and it will be what we make as opposed to having some reference point to some other monolith that we are subjugated to yeah i always kind of felt more like i imagined it more like jazz if you're a jazz music fan there are times you want to get together with other jazz fans hmm. and really go nerdy, you know. And then there's other times you, you want to introduce other people to jazz music. You don't introduce somebody to jazz by taking them to the wildest, hardest, most inaccessible Thelonious record, and and then going super deep. Yeah. You start with stuff that's accessible. Yes. You create a space where the ambience is great. You, you know, and then you don't look down on them for not getting it. No. Right. But that was what I was trying to do with True Tunes. That's that's what I did was I created a space. I had an intention. My intention was to create culture, create community, draw people into a conversation and relate to people. It was very missional. Yes, I did have uh, an intention to convey a a message. I want I loved these people. They were my peers. Yeah. I, I believe that Jesus, the actual historical person, uh, the life, the work, the words of Jesus was countercultural, radical, transformational. Yeah. I'd seen it in my life. I wanted to have that conversation with people when they wanted to have it with me. But I had to earn the right to have that conversation with Yes. Me. And I did that by creating a space where eventually these kids would come in and say, now this is also, you're looking at me at 50 years old. Back then I got long hair like you did. <laughs> I ripped up clothes and I looked just like everybody else. And they'd be like, dude, so you really like, you take this Jesus thing that seriously? I'm like, oh man, I do. Yeah. Because this is about love becoming a person, speaking truth to power, setting people free. I mean, what's more punk rock than that? And when you built that kind of relationship with time and you back it up and you're in that store every day, seven, yeah. six days a week, and these kids can come in and see you and relate to you, it has an effect. And yes, then it when does. you do when you have a, a different kind of effect with Christians, because what I started to realize was the bulk of our customers were these evangelical fundamentalist Christians who would get their undies in a wad yes. because I sold rattle and hum and Bono says in the shit house a shotgun, praying yes. hands hold me down. And he's speaking about desperate poverty in South Africa. And, and they're hung up on the word and they're shit. Hung up on where this desperation <laughs> happens is in an outhouse. Yeah. And they can't get over well, that. They're, the they're not even hung up on that. They're hung up on the, the, the word. F- the fact that it's described as a shithouse. And, yes. and, and they're like, you shouldn't be selling this because it's got profanity on it. I'm like, you're more offended by 
the description of the outhouse as being a shithouse than you are by the the fact condition that of the lives of the people we're referencing. The apartheid that's going on. And you're not like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. Like, then I'm thinking that's just an anomaly. Then I realize it's not. It's not. There's, that's when I started to have to have a friend of mine, a guy named Dave Bunker. He's actually here at this event. Now, Dave's been a mentor of mine since I was 16. But I, I, was, I was really upset when people would come in and throw these flyers at us and, uh, about uh, how evil True Tunes was. And, you know, these fundamentalists got really upset. And Bruce Coburn was, is, remains one of my favorite artists. And, you know, Bruce Coburn swore very artfully. You know, he had yeah. songs like They Call It Democracy. You know, I don't know what your language settings are on this podcast, but, um, you know, he had a song called uh, uh, If I Had a Rocket Launcher. Yes. You know, and which was his big, big hit. And, you know, and it's about, it's, it's about violence in Central America. And, and it pulled a curtain back for me and I did not yes. know about what was going on I was a kid I was you know 15 years old but yeah. I didn't know about that stuff but when he says if you know he's a pacifist or not a pacifist but he's not a violent he's person, anti-war but he's yeah and he's saying but if I had a rocket launcher some son of a bitch would die that's the punchline and you yes. go whoa like as much as I'm committed to these ideals if I had the authority to do something about this something bad would happen yeah then he has a song called they call it democracy and then he's unpacking what's really going on in the world. And he says, north, south, east, west, it's kill the best and buy the rest. It's spend a buck to make a buck and you don't give a flying fuck about the people in misery, but you call it democracy. And I'm going, holy cow. And then the rest yeah. of the record, it's just, this is gospel music to yes. me because this is talking about, and I'm selling as much of that stuff as I can at True Tunes because people that hear that in the context of hearing gospel music, in the context of hearing Steve Taylor, in the context of hearing the choir, in the context of hearing Res Band and Glenn Kaiser, like it's the whole conversation. Yes. You're sitting at the table with everything. And it worked because hmm. lots of people were like, okay, now this, I'm down with this. You don't, want to, you don't need to hear that, that language or that song all the time. But if you never hear it and you're totally protected from it, you're not hearing the t whole truth. No, you're not. You're cut off. And so what I did historically, it worked to an extent. And then other people got involved with plans to expand it, franchise it, take it big. And we also hit some snags. Advertisers didn't pay their bills. And we got in over our heads because we were naive and we were kids. Yeah. And the whole thing went away. It got bought out from under me and destroyed. And so by the time I was... 30 I, it was gone i was i was let go from my own company wow. and it changed ownership and it was over and then i went to work for cornerstone and i i helped cornerstone festival for years and then when we went to move to nashville the plan was i was going to start a kids label i really believe that really? music oh yeah yeah i actually produced a kids record for a, a label it was a it's a great record never got released because the whole industry collapsed and um the idea was to start this kids label um and i did consulting for missions groups and anybody that was trying to figure out a way to better talk to young people they were like you're good at this like you help us with this so i did consulting i did a lot of writing i wrote my first book raised by wolves um trying to talk about this weird alliance between rock and roll and and the, the church and uh and then I, I worked for cornerstone until that festival wound down and uh but in the meantime when we moved to nashville doors opened up for me to go work for capital it was emi christian music group which then got bought by universal became capital christian music yep i did not want to go work there that was in fact when when the first conversation happened with eddie DeGarmo about publishing i told my wife and i and i'm like you're not going to believe this like they're interested in me going and talking to them and she goes well you're going to go talk to them right and i said no i have hmm. no interest and she's like what's wrong with you like it's an open door go yeah you know 
So I did, and then I ended up feeling like God was saying, you're gonna go have a boss, you're gonna learn a bunch of <laughs> stuff, you're gonna work at a big company. I'd never done that in my whole life. So I did, and for almost a decade, I worked at the biggest music company in the world, and I learned everything there is to know about publishing. About halfway through, they put me over all the black gospel publishing. I love gospel music. I was more, way more comfortable working in black gospel music than I was in CCM music. And, uh, and I spent 10 years becoming an expert in all things publishing. I did film and TV. I did music supervision for films. I did lyric licensing. I did all that kind of stuff. And it paid about half our bills. And then I had to write a bunch of freelance work. I wrote 2,500 articles about addiction recovery to pay <laughs> the rent you know, like on the side to make up the difference because the industry had That's not out. every person's part-time no, job. No, it wasn't. And it was <laughs> not, not what I wanted to do, but it sharpened my writing skills and I learned a ton about addiction and about mental health as a pastor, as a writer. It was all my skills got sharpened and it set me up to write the Jesus Bread and Chocolate book. Yes. Um, and, it, and I was able to kind of pull a lot of these ideas together to say, man, the, the values of industry and commerce, commercialism um, have shaped the values of the church far more than the church has ever shaped those values. We think we're in a Christian culture, we're not. The, the church has been shaped by the powers of, of uh, militarism and empire and commerce. And uh, instead of transforming the culture, we have been transformed by this culture. Yes. And so I took bread and coffee and chocolate and beer and music as examples. And I tried to unpack I remember uh, that. And so that was a season. And I went out and did like 60 or 70 events, like speaking at churches and schools and bars yeah. and houses and and then I find out like the connection between this and sex trafficking and this and um, you know house concerts and yes. this and higher education and all this stuff and it was just amazing then when my time at Capitol I, I got laid off Eddie retired and then they kind of disassembled his creative team and I left Capitol and got recruited to join the team at Treveca and I went and I'm now the associate dean of the school of music at Treveca and you know I don't even have a, an undergrad I don't, I'm not even a college graduate and I'm the associate dean of a school yes. of music so I'm working on finishing my degree which is great I always wanted to do that and just finished my next novel uh, which is taking all these same ideas but turning it into a, a story because yes. again creating space for people to enter into and imagine what would happen if music drew people into community and then allowed for transformation to happen? Because right now I just see even within music, it's been used so much as a way to put up walls and divide people. Yes. And now I've learned some, I'm also working on rewriting Raised by Wolves because my premise in the original Raised by Wolves was that Christian rock was born of two parents, rock and roll and the church. And now I'm, I've learned some stuff that really there was a, the church part of that was really kind of this fundamentalist group of Christians that had had hated Christian music until they saw that they could use it in their culture wars. Yes. And that there's this... It was, deeply, a, it was a slightly more nefarious yeah. beginning. And then even Francis Schaeffer, who I loved art in the Bible when I was a kid, and the idea of the good, the true, and the beautiful, I quote that all the time, and I still live by that. I still, there's a lot of truth in that. Yes. But that even he became directly connected to the politicization of the church and that a lot of what we see now with this highly political, acidic, deeply divided, I think, foul yes. Christian culture is, is connected to Christian subculture yes. that's, that's now bored, not even Christian. It's just 
It's just putting a fish on a car and calling the car a Christian car. Yes. You know, and so my thing is I can go on and, and argue with friends maybe over a beer or something, and that's fine and fun and sometimes even effective, but what I'm trying to do with True Tunes is to say, boy, you know what? If we can create an environment where people can learn to listen, yes. what do I need to learn still? from people i'm going to people that i know i still need to learn from and i'm listening yes to them. and then what kind of environment might we inspire people to calm down and breathe deeper and relax and music can help us do that yes and so i'm i just kind of said well okay i got the name back truetunes.com um and so all these years later i was able to reboot it but say now i'm a different person than i was when i was a kid and i started this i've got new skills I, I don't have to make any money off of it. Like there's no economic model at all. Like I, it's just costing me money. So it's just, it's like, well, let's just do this thing. Yeah. Let's do it as best we can. And let's do it different than anybody else is doing it. Yeah. And see if we can inspire a different way of think for young people of thinking about how to integrate faith and music. And, and for other people, it's, it's more like if they're not, Christians, they wouldn't want to call themselves Christians. No, like, that's fine. I don't care. You, you don't have to. There's a lot of days I don't want to call myself a Christian either, especially if I've had the TV on for more than five minutes. But let's let's take that word out of it then, and let's just say, let's talk about music and soul and spirit and relationships, and and see where it takes us, because we probably have more in common than not. Yes. The art of listening part of that conversation. Uh, I don't know how often you got to be around Ken Hefner when Ken was at Calvin yeah. College. Yeah, a, a little bit. Yeah. yeah, he would do a thing that uh, I had never seen someone do that uh, I took to doing because I'd seen him do is when he was hosting an event, specifically he was hosting a concert. He would take to the stage beforehand and this would be in front of anybody. So, I mean, I'd, 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 I'd seen... Uh, you know, Patty Griffin was there and he did this and, uh, um, uh, uh, bird. Why am I blanking on his name? Andrew bird. Andrew bird is there and he did this. He's on the stage. Uh, Lupe fiasco. He did this in front of, he did this in front of the national. Um, as he would welcome the welcome people. Glad you're here. Ken Hefner said, now I, you have paid a price to be here. And because you've done that, you would expect that the band brings, the best that they have to the stage. And then he would flip the script and say, are you going to do the same? Like, are you going to listen well? Right. And I had never seen anyone challenge the challenge an audience or challenge people in general to like a sincerely different posture of listening as if it was a thing you had a choice right. about. Yeah, right? Yeah, right. And what struck me after I saw him do it the second or third time was exactly that, that it is, a, it is, it is a trained discipline, yes. like the ability to listen, just like the ability to see. Yes. There is an automatic, I, there are things that just come into my head by way of my ears. Yes, it is a thing, but to do it well right. actually requires training, right. which means I'm being trained constantly by the culture around me by the voices around me the intentionality with which you are approaching this podcast the true tunes podcast is is a it's, it's a practice in like the teaching of listening here's here's an artist here's an album here's here's a movement here's a moment in in music uh that has a religious connotation religious 
but it's in, instead maybe. of just may, not, maybe, not always, right. but that uh, but in, that and instead of just the assumption that folks would be able to like pick the ball up and just listen and be fine. And instead of like the arrogant notion of this is here's this song here's what this means shove it down your throat, there is a there is a there is a posture and a practice in in your work it's 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 in uh, it's in your your second book uh, I'm blanking on the name of the title Jesus bread, and Jesus bread and chocolate that there's a training required in order to actually attend to, to actually pay right. the word pay attention right. to the world around you. Um, give me a little bit of it, like the episode we were listening to at uh, uh, the table, Natalie the most Bergman. recent. Oh, it was actually, the, yeah, that was the Natalie Bergman one. Yeah, uh, talk Amy, to me Amy about, like, like story, yeah. talk to me about your process going in, going into a conversation with her, a conversation around her music. Like, how are you, how are you entering into that, to this conversation with her, and what are you expecting and wanting from your listeners? Yeah, that's a good question. So with Natalie, it's interesting because she's not, she's a mainstream artist. She was in Wild Bell. No connection to Christian music at all. No familiarity with it at all. Right. Uh, she went through a tragedy that she talked about in other interviews. So it was out there enough that I could I could read about the fact that her father died and that, that loss sent her into uh, a season of profound grief. And eventually she went off into the desert to a monastery and went into a silent retreat kind of an environment and yes. that's where she felt like she refound Jesus she was raised in a in a christian home but hadn't really been very connected to that and so she finds this connection to Jesus out in the desert at this monastery and then these songs start coming and she's a songwriter she's been a songwriter for her whole life yes and so these songs though to me sound like Jesus music songs from the 60s and 70s yeah and and i said okay I'm really interested in that. I'm interested in the DNA of these songs and the, the similarity, but I don't want to lay over my perception on her story yes. and make assumptions. Um, so what I do to prep is I listen to her music a lot. I probably hmm. listen to her album. That, now the label, the album wasn't out yet. And Third Man Records, which is Jack White's label, was very gracious in setting up the interview. They sent me the songs ahead of the release so I could listen to it. And I probably listened to that album seven or eight times all the way through yeah. so that I really understood it. I took a lot of notes on what different lyrics jumped out at me, the, right. the way she was using her voice, the style of the songs. Yep. Um, I noticed a guitar thing and I was like, there's an interesting kind of recurring guitar thing. And I kind of spent some time on that and realized it's kind of an, a West African thing that she's doing hmm. with the guitar. What's that about? So I you know, did a little research on that. Um, but then when we talked... And this is the way I do most of my interviews, especially if I have time. It was a little different with the Amy Grant one yes. because I didn't have much time. But I already know Amy Grant. And yep. I know her music, and most people also know her music. So um, hold on one second. Um, I missed it. Uh, yes. Is this emergency? I'm in the middle of an interview. Sure. Yeah, I'll have a black coffee. That's an emergency. Yeah, I don't like anything but that. Okay, bye. bye. It's beautiful. Um, coffee can be an emergency. I'm fine with that. <laughs> there is Starbucks. They know that I don't like Starbucks too much, but I still don't like anything else that they have. So, um, so with with Amy, it was different because we ha we already know each other and yes and stuff. Uh, with Natalie. 
I, uh, I wanted to just let her speak. Yeah. I had some questions prepared, but often I don't end up going by a script. Like no. it, it, the conversation just flows. And uh, it was interesting, her response. I said, are you, are you familiar with Jesus music, like from the 60s and early 70s and the Jesus movement? And she said, no, tell me about it. Yeah. So her wow. answer was also an invitation for me to tell her what the Jesus movement was. Yeah. And I t gave my best attempt to explain it to her in a couple of minutes, and she found it fascinating. I said, I'll send you some music if you want. So we sent her a mix of Bruce put together a, about a hour and a half long mix of Jesus music from the, you know, kind of some really cool stuff. Yeah. And she loved it. So, uh, but that kind of conversation allows me to listen to what they're actually saying. And yes. not just listen for the opportunity for me to speak. It's not again. just to set it up and knock it down. It's, right. it's actually, right. you are, you're allowing, and this is again, like the art of listening. Yes. It's one thing to do the, which is unfortunately, it's not all of uh, Christian market culture, but it is far too much of Christian market culture, market culture, that there is a place. This is, there is a place. This story is going to end. Right. There is a conclusion this conversation is going to come to. There is an answer that these questions, there is an answer that right. these questions are going to lead to. Right. We're going to get to these places, right. which then makes the journey cheap. And boring. And boring. And the thing is also, I've done this for so long interviewing artists that I know that especially if they have a new album, they've probably done a bunch of interviews already. Yes. So part of my job is to get them off, out of the rut, like yeah. out of the rut because otherwise they're going to start saying the same thing they've said a million times and yes. it starts to sound kind of canned. So I'm pretty good at nudging people out of the rut and, and helping them realize they can be expressive. Yeah. And they appreciate that. Yeah. I've done that since, you know, for 30 years. Yep. Um, but the other thing is they, they, they need to feel comfortable, especially if they don't know me. Now, most of the people I've talked to on the podcast are old friends. So they already know that they're comfortable with me. But if it's somebody that doesn't know me, there's things I can do to hopefully make sure they know I'm listening. I try to do it. If we're doing it online, we are looking at each other on the, on the camera. Like yeah. They can see that I'm actually engaged and paying attention. But the other thing is the way that we produce it, I think helps people. We insert some pauses and we play little clips of music so that people have a chance to digest what yes. they just heard. Yeah. Because in real time, you just can't, there's too much information coming. And when you're a bystander, if, if we're talking, we're yeah. able, it's a, it's a binary thing. You're able to process everything I'm saying just fine. I'm able to process what you're saying. And we'll remember some of it. But for a third party, it's too much. They're bouncing back and forth. So yes. we, Bruce, my partner in this, he's excellent at finding the right moment to hit the pause button and play a little bit of music that just helps people go, okay, hmm, that... Let it, let it settle in. Yeah. And it's amazing the difference that that makes. And that's the, that to me is inspiring, hopefully, people to listen to music differently. Yes. That's, maybe it's like why some people like to listen to vinyl is because hmm. you're putting a record on and then, you know, you're going to probably listen to that whole side. You're not going to just put it on the one song. And, and it pushes you out of the routine of track by track, huh. spinning one single you know, it's more of an event. You're getting that thing out. You're investing a little bit more time. So yeah. you appreciate it a little bit more. And we're trying to do that with the conversation. And it does allow us when the artists hear, and this goes back to even when they saw their interviews in print, when they saw the way we treated them, 
and now when they listen to it, they appreciate it so much yes. that they're more likely to come back yes. and, and they're more likely to promote it and to send the link out to their friends. And, so, and, that, and that's important that they know that we're, we're not, it's not gotcha journalism. It's not, we're not trying to, you know, we're just, we're their partner in this thing. We're, we're trying, we're after something beautiful. We're not. I wish you know. I remembered. I'm, I'm thinking of a quote and I, I'm going to, I will look it up. I'll put it in the show notes, but there is a, a psychologist who wrote something along the lines of that, that, that there is such a fine difference or a fine line between like being heard, like knowing that you're heard and knowing that you're loved oh, wow. that like that it, it is so slim a line that there might not, that there might not actually be a difference. It is so it, the, the, the being heard is such an integral element mm-hmm. of being, of knowing that you're loved right. That like it, there's there may maybe I think it's that the, the being heard is such an integral element of what it means it feels like to be loved yeah. that like we don't always if ever sometimes really know the difference like I just know that I'm heard and received in this place it's like especially with someone who has you know they've got people clamoring for their time right. and they're looking for certain answers um, like to actually be in a position in which when you say something someone picks up on that nuance. And says, "Can you tell me more about right. that thing you just right. said? Like to actually be heard, yeah. um, that you're not just a mechanism, right. that you're not, and you're not just the artist on, in the interview. That you are actually a human, which is where your art comes from. Right. And you know, telling somebody, it's amazing how often somebody says, I 'I don't know if this is what you're going for,' but blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, I'm not going for. I'm not anything. going for anything. I don't have an what, end in mind. What's in there? Yeah. Yes. I don't have an end in mind. I have no axe to grind. I have no agenda here, and that's." just subtle things like reminding people you know i'm not i'm not in this for any particular no i'm not trying to i'm not trying to draw a conclusion it is amazing how many people say that how often they say that because we all think that the person well we might tend to think that the person talking to us is actually after something yes and that's because because a lot of the culture is yeah well because of how transactional everything is yes and so part of what at the nub of who i am right now whether it's the house church thing I'm trying to pastor, whether it's my friends, it's trying to inspire people out of that transactional rut into something transformational. That's good. And we, if we're going to do that, we have to become mindful of how transactionalism infiltrates every corner of our existence. Yes. It's our marriages. It's the way we parent. It's obviously every dime that we spend yes. or don't spend. Um, but it's how we see ourselves at a core level. We are primarily consumers. And that is not what the Imago Dei means. We are not primarily consumers. We are no. primarily creators. Yes. We, are, we are put here to inhabit the earth, to consume it, not consume it like a snowblower, you know, picks it up and churns it out and blows it out the other end. Like we're supposed to craft it and mold it and make something beautiful out of it. That we're builders. Yeah. We're not consumers. I mean, there may be times for that. There's times to feast. Yes, but that's not who you are intrinsically. Yeah, it's not who right. are you. It's an element to to be a consumer or to consume is an, an element of what it means to be human. Right, exactly. But to be it's but to orient identity. my entire existence right. around that, or as tragically, I would suggest <laughs> to orient the entirety of a religious culture yeah. around uh, around the consumer drive in persons. Yeah. Is it's an, it's not just a miss. It's actually an injustice. It's antichrist because it is antichrist it, because it, what it's done is it's and, and ironically look at how they take the one aspect of the liturgy that is about consumption, communion, the Eucharist. Yes. 
where we're supposed to be ingesting, consuming the body and blood of Christ, and that what do they do? They turn it into the tiniest little super convenient pill of flour yes. and little cup of juice. It's yeah. like, no, this is where we're supposed to be eating, feasting on a meal. Yes. We're supposed to be around a table eating a meal, not tiny little cracker and a little bit of juice. Yeah. We've, we've, we've gotten this whole thing upside down, and, and that's what happens. That's, that's how idolatry affects mm. us is the idol becomes this god and the the idol that we've been subsumed by is this consumerist uh transactional yes. thing and it looks a lot like christianity if you want it with a little tm after it because that's just the only way that most of us have ever been exposed to yes. it but but then we just have to skip and ignore most of what Jesus actually says in the Gospels because when he's confronted with these things he's constantly saying I don't know render unto Caesar what is Caesar's yeah we're gonna have to discern this one yes you know uh, and we don't want to discern so we abdicate our discernment to our brands yes and we just do what they tell us you to tell do. me you yeah. tell me where God is yeah. you tell me what God looks like and I'll consume and I'll just consume it the thing that breaks that cycle, the thing that smashes the idol, the thing that the place where better culture comes from, because it's, you know, I, I buy what Andy Crouch has said in the past about about culture and culture war that like, you don't, the cure for bad culture is just better culture. But but you can't just you, but, but you, you can't start with you can't, culture part because exactly is an expression of something. Right? So the you thing so you can't just start yeah, with this is bad. I'm going to make a different version of it because right. that's what went wrong in the '80s with yes. with Christian rock and roll was we like this thing, but there's something bad about it's it. So I'm going to make something competitive to it. Right. The thing that smashes the idol, the thing that actually breaks the cycle, actually is an authentic encounter with reality, an authentic encounter with. Transformation. A transformation, <laughs> transformational relationship with human beings, with the divine, with yourself, right. which brings me back to like the importance of the work that you've been doing uh, and will continue to do, which is the training uh, the human ear and soul to actually pay attention to do the thing that I was, I was mentioned that Ken Hefner used yeah. to do is to stop and say, listen, you're surrounded by noise. These songs exist in the world. These lyrics are in this song. These sounds make up this music. Before you just finish the song, take a moment. Here's what surrounds that. Here's what I'm hearing. And to train the human ear and the soul to actually listen and to pay attention. It actually makes the way for transformational engagements. Yeah. Yeah. And and so some people are already there and they're like, hey, walk me through it. Let's do it. And, uh, and some people are going, I have no idea what you're talking about. So yeah. they need to hear stories about that. Yes. So I tell them. I tell them about the time my teenage son years ago said, hey, Dad, I got this new Coheed and Cambria, this progressive metal band. You know, yeah. has a new album coming out. Can I have a handful of friends come over? We use the vi- He got vinyl. He wanted to play it on my good record player. But he's like, what I want to do is bring speakers out, listen to it on your record player through the good speakers. But I want to look at a fire while we're listening to it. So could we build a fire, bring the speakers outside, and actually like stare at the fire and listen to the vinyl at the same time? And I said, yes. Yes, please. We will find a way to do that. So I bought a bunch of freaking speaker cable and rigged it up. And these cool college kids came over and listened to this progressive metal album staring into a campfire. And 
then had a discussion about it. And then when it was done, one of them said, is that the new Dylan album about the Titanic on your desk? And I said, yeah, it was Tempest. This was years ago. Yeah. And he goes, that, that has a 21-minute song or something about the sinking of the Titanic? And I said, yeah, it does. He goes, could we listen to that? I said, yes. Yes, you, yes we can. <laughs> and I put that on, and they were what like, what a great moment. What else do you have? And we sat out there until after midnight listening to records, staring at the embers of a campfire with a wow. bunch of college students. It was that's transformational. Yes. And then they have me, who I'm feeling like crap now that I'm the old guy. Yeah. And they're, they're sitting there. I don't want to be the old guy. I'm not old enough yet. But I was. Yeah. And... I, and then I tell people about, you know, when Dylan's most recent album came out last year and it's during COVID and um, the whole family was gone doing different things. And I sat on my deck. I knew it was coming out. I got some Indian food takeout. I sat on my deck and I listened to that album for six hours straight over wow. and over again on wow. a beautiful night, staring at the stars, just having a drink, listening to the eating Indian food and listening to this album. And I just was taken away like yeah. wow I have nothing else to do I have nothing else to worry about but just listen to this music over and over and over again and think about the lyrics and think about the artwork and think about what he's trying to say and yeah it was fantastic and so sometimes we just got to tell those stories because there's people that have only ever listened to music on their phone yes you know and no wonder they think it's cheap and then you got artists who are going oh, well, why should I bother to think that much about the music I'm making because They've never learned to appreciate it. They're just yes. trying to get spins. They're just which is to, to say clicks. you're creating in light of the way a thing is going to be consumed, exactly. which isn't a terrible motive. No, it's I mean, it's an element of it's an element of the exchange, right. but that shouldn't be where art comes from. So one of the earlier interviews we did on the podcast was with a producer songwriter named Ian Fitchuk, who's worked with Marin Morris, worked with Casey Musgraves, um, and we talked about Enchantment. I was like, okay, you just won the Grammy Award for producer a year. You won the ACM Award for producer, yeah, CMA. What I want to talk to you about is enchantment. What music enchanted you as a kid and made yeah. you say, I got to do this? Because enchantment is, is something that will pull people in, but propositional arguments and transactions, that's, that's clicking a button and going, oh, okay, I'll listen to a minute of that song and I might, I might if I love it, even buy the t-shirt. But that's not going to change anybody's life. No. But enchantment will pull people into. Now, the fact is, we're all seeking enchantment and we will be enchanted by something hmm. you know it will either be sports and it's relatively neutral maybe it won't have any you know profound effect on us but it'll it'll tickle that part of us that wants to be enchanted we'll feel those emotions yes or it might be something more nefarious it might be something that gets in there and makes us feel like we're part of some big grand holy war that we're accomplishing some QAnon kind of thing, like mm. you know. But we will be enchanted into some mystical experience because we're made to. Ecclesiastes three, we're like the the eternal has been planted in our hearts. You know, it's we're, there's a homing beacon in us that's drawing us to this stuff. But none of us is going to understand it. None of us is going to know all of it from that's done from the beginning of time. Yes. But there's something drawing us to that. We can either recognize and be mindful of that and channel it and direct it and appreciate yes. it, or we can ignore it and be enchanted by Bud Light and QAnon and, you know, whatever. But we will be enchanted. Yes. We will be overcome by yeah. something. It's just what. And my hope, my sincere hope, what I'm trying to do is say, hey, you know what? If we learn to listen better to music, maybe that will help us learn to listen better to the people next to us too. It's very good because it's the same muscles, you know. Mm. And and then maybe we can s start to hear 
<laughs> you know, and yeah. then we could go, oh, 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 oh. That person that I thought was my enemy is not actually my enemy. That's we don't good. wrestle against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against something else. There's some energy going on here. That's what we're wrestling against. But we can't hear it mm. because there's too many Bud Light ads on the radio. Like, <laughs> there's really too are. much stuff going on. So, yeah. That's really good. John, thanks for your time. Absolutely. It's very good. Yeah. It was great. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Etsy Podcast. If you'd like to keep up with John and his work, you can jump to truetunes.com. It's just T-R-U-E-T-U-N-E-S, truetunes.com. If, on the other hand, you'd like to be one of the folks who's behind this podcast, which in its own way is attempting to retrain the human ear to listen a little bit more closely to the world around us, jump to patreon.com and search my name, Justin McRoberts. We'd love to have you on the team. Until next time.